believe in yourself. Know that even though you feel like a piece of shit when you come in and when you start this and there's very little hope and life's hard, know that it's worth it and your life can get better and you're worth it. And know that you're not a horrible person and you don't, you have a lot of good in you. And even though you're focused on the, the bad stuff and the legal problems and the bad issues and the character defects and all the crap, you know, find the good in you, find the laughter, find the joy, find the hope because you're worth it. Everybody's worth it. That was Hannah Murmuron, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today we have Hannah Mermeron joining us on the show, and many of you know Hannah because she is such an active member in the Share Sobriety Network. She is truly an inspiration. I have watched her transform her life. All of us have watched her transform her life. She used boxing as a way of losing 60 pounds and recovery as a way of completely transforming her life. When you hear her story, you will understand that today, Hannah is a completely different person, and it's all because she decided, she made the decision to go all in on recovery. So let's dive into Hannah's beautiful story, but first, a quick message from our sponsors. Let me ask you this. Are you tired of people-pleasing? Are you a recovering perfectionist? Do you find that you're angry all the time? Irritable, restless, and discontent. Are you trapped in the cycle of self-sabotage and find that you're soothing yourself with drugs, alcohol, relationships, sex, food, workaholism, or social media? Then it's time to schedule a free consultation with me today. What if I told you that in just eight short weeks, you could reset your entire emotional state be able to set healthy boundaries, let go of perfectionism, and finally get the relief you've always needed to be able to take a breath. <sighs> and in that breath comes happiness, fulfillment, and joy. My name is Omar Pinto. I'm an NLP life coach, as well as an addiction recovery specialist. And I can help you discover what's holding you back from living the life you were always intended to live. So go to www.omar Pinto.com and schedule free consultation with me today. Today's episode is also brought to you by the SRC, the Share Recovery Community. The SRC is a private membership community that offers live online meetings as well as peer-to-peer -peer recovery, sobriety support, and accountability. The biggest challenge for addicts and alcoholics is to connect with the tribe and to find the pathway that works for them. In the SRC, we meet you where you are at in your journey of recovery. Where are you at now? Where would you like to go? And how can we help you? The value of the SRC and these live online meetings is an opportunity to develop beautiful friendships with people all over the world. But more importantly, to get the support that you need to get sober and stay sober. So whether you're looking to enhance your current recovery program or find your sobriety tribe, this is the fellowship for you. And to join the SRC, it's only $1 for the first month. And then after that, it's only $12 a month. It's the best investment you can make in your recovery. So to join the SRC, 
Go to www.thesharepodcast.com. Go to the top of the navigation bar and click on the button that says Share Recovery Community. And join the Share Recovery Community for only $1 today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. Are you looking for a new recovery-related podcast to add to your playlist? Then I have great news for you. The SRC has recently launched its first podcast titled The Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In the SRC, the Share Recovery Community, we have some amazing online meetings every single day. And one of those is our Tao Recovery Meeting. In this meeting, one chapter of the Tao Te Ching is discussed every week as to how it relates to recovery. The content is so good, we decided to share this meeting as a podcast. So go to your favorite podcast app and search for the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast to check this podcast out today. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Omar. Thank you for having me today. I am super excited to have you on the show. How are you feeling? I am feeling really excited. I uh, have been listening to this podcast forever, so it's kind of a surreal experience, but also a, something I've been wanting to do forever. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Very grateful. Well, I am excited for you to be here as well and for joining us. Um, and it's always an honor for me to have someone from the Share Recovery Network um, because we've known each other for so long but we've, this is the first time we're meeting in person. So it's like that nice, it changes the dynamic of our relationship forever. Totally. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish that I was one of those people that was in uh, Costa Rica right now meeting you in person instead of Nebraska where it snowed yesterday. So <laughs> a little, little starting the runner already, but. Uh, <laughs> there is no, there's definitely no snow in Costa Rica. No. Yeah. And it is beautiful. Yeah. Even during right, actually right now is the rainy season and mm. October is the heaviest uh, month for rain of the year. If that makes you feel any better. Okay. Does we get, not, but thanks for trying. Okay. All right. We're just doing my best because it's heavy rains every day. Uh, doesn't change the fact that we're still are able to wear t-shirts and shorts. So that's yeah. all, you know, doesn't change the climate. So anyway, all right, so we're going to dive right in. So folks, today we have Hannah Mimeron joining us on the Share Podcast. And uh, Hannah written back to me recently, and she writes, I have been thinking about sharing my story on the podcast since like forever. Uh, I did an episode of Mother Recovering last year when I had six months of sobriety. Then I did the video interview with Sarah Roberts that aired for sobriety starts here last week i think i was on that too I, it, it, did she change mm -hmm. the name of it or is it that's the one that's her first uh show she she just started a new talk show that she's doing um a tv format but that that her first show is that uh, sobriety starts here okay okay all right so i i think i was on that one when she and she you recently were, launched yeah. that one okay great Mm -hmm. Sharing my story has helped me in lots of ways already. It's helped me put it together and understand more about it. It helps, it helped reduce shame and guilt. It's helped me make more, it's helped make me more comfortable talking about all of my life. It's helped me have compassion for myself and it seemed to help other people. Sound about right, Hannah? That is right. All right. Yep. Excellent. 
All right, so you know the drill. Before we get into your story, Hannah, please tell us about your normal daily routine, including recovery. Okay, so I'm kind of dreading this question. I listen every week to the podcast. I think I've heard every single episode, and every week somebody says this amazing routine, uh, you know, hours of meditation and yoga and this whole thing. And I, I totally get why that's important to recovery, and that's my goal in life. Honestly, right now, I got three kids that are under the age of 10. So mornings at my house are crazy. So oh the goal is for me to get up uh, half an hour before the kids and do meditation and prayer. And then by the time the kids get up, uh, you know, breakfast, get them dressed, get their teeth brushed, get their backpacks cleaned out, lunches made, you know, everybody looking presentable, get into school uh, by 8.45. So if I do that, everybody's fed. And, um, you know, in, in class on time, I kind of consider it a win. Yes. Uh, so, so that's my morning. Uh, but, uh, you know, mornings where it goes really well, um, we do the... I do meditation and prayer, get the kids fed. And then um, one thing that I learned from your show is this... Uh, the quote of the day podcast and you, you know, you interviewed Sean Croxton and ever since I listened to that episode, I have listened to that podcast every weekday morning that it's on. And, um, most mornings I like, I make my kids listen to it before school too. And then I interview, I uh, quiz them about what they learned. So <laughs> that's been a huge part of my recovery. And, um, so that's been cool. So once I get the kids to school, um, that's when things kind of slow down for me a little bit. And I typically um, then take a little time and, uh, you know, kind of review what I have for the day. And um, then I, I uh, most mornings go to a boxing class or a yoga class. So I start with some exercise. Uh, then I go home and clean up breakfast and clean up myself and um, get, get myself ready for work and, uh, and head to work. I usually get to work about 10, 30, 11 uh, every morning. So that's, that's how I typically start my day. Okay, I love it. And for those of you listening, the quote of the day is the it used to be the only podcast I recommend outside of the share podcast. I I listen to it during the week every day. If I miss days, I binge listen on to catch up because they're only 10-minute episodes. They're under mm-hmm. 10 minutes each, so you get this amazing inspirational um uh, quote of the day. From one of, you know, any number of motivational speakers like Eric Thomas or Tony Robbins or Mel Robbins or, you know, the list goes on and on and Bob Proctor. Um, and so, yeah, that one I recommend. And I recently started listening to the Tony Robbins podcast as well. Mm-hmm. That one's also like 20 minutes long and yeah. it's awesome. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely awesome. So yes, I always, to my coaching clients, to my friends, I say, listen to the quote of the day in the morning. It's under 10 minutes and it will supercharge your morning. Correct? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Really good stuff. Really just bite-sized content at less than 10 minutes and um, very inspirational and, and applies to a lot in my life. So it's been, it's been a really cool thing to add. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. So I love the plug there as well. All right. So my other question is always about your spiritual condition. It's, it's a big element in my life. And so I always ask people, how do you maintain that conscious contact with your higher power on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. 
uh, a sponsor that I worked with uh, once really helped me see that um, paying attention to the feeling I have in my gut or my stomach um, is kind of either listening to me or listening to my higher power, uh, however you want to say it. Um, but that made so much sense to me. And the way she broke it down was, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're, if somebody asks you what kind of vegetables you want and you just have a, a feeling in your gut about, huh, do you want broccoli or asparagus? <laughs> the feeling you have where you pay attention to, to what, what you really want, um, that's, that's your higher power. So, uh, that made a lot of sense to me. And, uh, so now for me to pay attention to my spiritual condition, I check for that feeling throughout the day all the time to see, am I staying true to myself? Am I listening to that feeling in my gut? Um, and, uh, just kind of staying in touch with that. So not getting too busy, not getting too tired, uh, not getting too hungry or lonely, checking out, um, you know, how I'm feeling and how I'm staying present with myself is pretty much how I stay in, in touch with my higher power. And then, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, um, asking for sobriety for the day and for a good day and, um, you know, kind of asking, I, I say the third step prayer every morning when I wake up. Um, and then at night, uh, before I go to bed, uh, thank you, my higher power for sobriety. And also, um, I list three things that happen during the day that I'm grateful for. So if I'm staying in, in tune with myself during the day and then, uh, doing those prayers that, uh, you know, before bed and, um, when I wake up, that that's a good day for me. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Here's the thing that's really important for everyone. Your intuition, everyone has it. Everyone has that gut feeling. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, when the topic of higher power comes in, that is an example of paying attention to what my higher power is telling me. So many times you're about to do something that you know is going to go sideways. You know I'm about to say something, and it's not going to go over well. I'm about to do something, and I'm pretty sure it's going to go sideways on me, and I do it anyway, and I go, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. That uh -huh. is your higher power talking to you. Yep. Totally agree with that. It's broccoli or whatever you want to go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And how many times do you regret listening to that voice versus how many times do you regret not listening to that voice? Every time, right? For me anyway. It's so true. It's so true. Mm -hmm. If I listen to it and you're like, oh, I dodged the bullet. Totally. Because huh? yep. that comes out. I mean, how many times has everyone said that in their lives? Oh, my God. I think I just dodged a bullet. Uh-huh. Yep. And it's just that whole paying attention to that God-given intuition that we have. It's a barometer. And it yeah. just starts, no, 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 don't do it. Mm -hmm. Oh! Right? And so this is why I asked the question. Everyone has a different way of connecting with their higher power. Some people walk in nature. Some people are religious. Some people have a spiritual practice. Some people are very, very, very connected internally Mm -hmm. to what's going on emotionally in their body because mm -hmm. your emotional state tells you a lot about what your next move is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm pretty connected now. Uh, I use meditation as a tool. I um, I love this Insight Timer app. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I, I do that um, 
I, I like to do it twice a day, but I always, I have been doing it once a day pretty consistently for the past few months. And it's made a huge difference just in keeping me in tune with that intuition and that higher power. And, um, you know, so I recognize my body, you know, what I'm feeling in my body. And then I, yoga is also a, a really helpful tool for me to, to stay in touch with that too. So. I'm sure. I'm sure. Now you kind of, cause you talk about how you're so busy, you got the three kids mm-hmm. and all that kind of good stuff. But I see you posting boxing po- photos all the time. So it's not like you're going once a month to the boxing, right? So how, I, yeah. what does that look like? How many days a week? How many hours? Yeah. So when I tell my story, I'll kind of get into how I okay. started boxing. But it, uh, it, it, I've been going about a year. And at first, um, boxing was the first place that I ever felt uh, angry and was out, was like allowed to be angry. So mm-hmm. I got, uh, I really liked it at first. And so I was going for a long time, five days a week. And just in the past, um, three or four months I've been, I've cut it down. I go usually now two or three times a week. Um, so for an hour class and then I, I do yoga also usually two or three times a week. Yeah. So there it is. There is yoga and boxing six times a week. Four yeah, to six, six times, times a week. week yeah, yeah mm-hmm. four, Let's just say four to six times a week. That's a practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll get into all that as we get into your story. So then my next question is going to be, how much time, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just checked my other app, my, <laughs> measuring my sobriety days. So it's a, I have 501 days today. So my date of sobriety is June 1st, 2017. June 1st, 2017. So you just celebrated a year, June, July, August. Oh, it's uh, how many months? June, July, August, September, October, four months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 16 months. One year, 16 months. Awesome. 501 days. I love it. All right. And so briefly, tell us how old you were the first time you drank or use drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Uh, the first time I ever drank or used drugs was uh, my first weekend of college. <laughs> um, my freshman year of college, I drank. I grew up in, uh, you know, never drank or, or did any drugs in high school. So I went away to college uh, to a big city about a thousand miles away from home. And a guy handed me a bottle of Goldschlager. Thank you oh. for the whole damn thing. <laughs> it's my very first drink. <laughs> Some people start with Miller Lite. I start with Goldschlager. <laughs> go big or go home. That's what <laughs> the nastiest, just the nastiest Goldschlager. Okay, go it ahead. Fancy. It, had, it was fancy. I had gold. Oh, gold it looks it, it looks very very fancy until it goes down. Oh yeah, and comes back up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, you know, the way it made me feel was um, it made me feel alive, and it made me feel. Like I could shut off the voice in my head mm-hmm. and I could stop being anxious. And that was the first time I think I remember being able to relax and just be myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Feeling alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shut down the voices. All right. Yeah. Hannah, you are all warmed up. So it's time for me to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story with us. Battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life. When you hit rock bottom. And finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Hannah, take it away. Okay. Thank you, Omar. Uh, so, 
I did not have a very exciting or traumatic childhood for which I'm really, really blessed and lucky. Um, I'm a therapist now. So I, I work with a lot of trauma and a lot of people who have had uh, traumatic childhoods. And I was just really lucky that I didn't. Um, my parents met their uh, freshman year of college at, at college orientation when they went to, to college in North Carolina. My mom grew up in Texas, my dad in North Carolina. They got married when they were 20 and they had me when they were 23. My dad was a Presbyterian minister when I was growing up and my mom stayed at home with, with my sister and I. And um, I have one sister, one sibling only, a sister that is two years younger. So my uh, dad becomes a minister and, and goes to seminary where I was born in Texas. And then uh, my parents decided that they would move to a place where they... Um, didn't know anybody where it would be uh, safe and a really good, stable place to raise kids. So they wanted to move to the Midwest. So they, my dad started applying for um, preaching jobs in the Midwest. And he picked Palmyra, Nebraska, which is a tiny town um, outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. So we moved there when I was two. And then I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a, a, a medium-sized city right in the Midwest, uh, capital city. So um grew up going to my dad's church. Um, he was not super uh, conservative. I mean, not crazy religious, but uh, the church was just a major part of, of our life growing up um, and uh, had a really pretty good childhood. I was um, really involved in uh, things in, in school like journalism. I was the editor of my high school yearbook. Um, I was involved in Young Life and some clubs growing up and um, just just active, happy. Um, a couple, you know, minor things like my, my mom really struggled with some some depression and stuff. So um, she was in and out a little bit, but for the, for the most part was was there and okay. Um, my dad was really busy with church stuff, and then he um, kind of burned out on that. And so when I was in high school, he quit being a minister and um, went back to law school so that he could pursue some mediation and some other career stuff. So there were some just you know transitions and some difficult stuff but for the most part um no no major chaos uh from day one I think I decided that um it was my job to take care of everybody else and nobody told me that and nobody gave me that job but for some reason uh that was my job so uh, two memories that my parents always tell me my mom always says that uh or often says that I was about two and she remembers me asking her mom are you happy can I you know are you happy, mom? Are you happy, mom? So I was just always worried about her happiness and worried about her being okay. Um, moving from Houston or Austin, Texas to a really small town in Nebraska was difficult for, for her. So I think I was trying to take care of her. And then uh, being a preacher's kid, uh, I, I helped out in the church a lot. So trying to help my dad, um, you know, fill the communion trays and uh, iron choir, you know, the robes and get stuff ready for church. So I was just busy taking care of everybody else and did not focus much on, on my needs. So that was one story. And then uh, the other story that my dad always tells me is that um, I was such a perfect kid growing up that um, all my parents had to do was look at me. Like if I was just doing something a little bit off or a little bit wrong, um, all my parents had to do was just look at me and I would just start crying and say, I'm sorry. Um, I hated being in trouble and I kind of lived my whole childhood wanting to avoid that. I started feeling guilty for no reason super early on and just kind of then tried to live my life avoiding getting in trouble, which was not fun. <laughs> Set me up for a lot of hard times. So uh, grow up and, and, and 
did not really realize how exhausting that life was. So I get to college and my parents um, gave my sister and I a gift. They kind of said, listen, uh, go away to college because they both had the opportunity to go away to school. So um, they said, we'll pay for you or we'll help you pay for any school you can go to, not in Nebraska where we So I went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and I was super excited to leave Nebraska and leave being a minister's daughter and leave being this good girl newspaper uh, editor, we're uh, uh, yearbook editor, um, go to the big city. So I get to GW and um, oh, it was it was awesome. There were <laughs> <laughs> the, I lived in this freshman dorm where there are 900 kids in this freshman dorm, all freshmen, and uh, boys' rooms right next to girls' rooms. Um, no rules, no curfew. Uh, I was this. This is crazy coming from my house where it was pretty strict. Um, and I just fell in love with it. Uh, like I said, the first weekend of college, I drank and got wasted. And um, then a couple weeks later, uh, they had a, a Greek life rush recruitment. So I joined a sorority. Um, I met girls from places like, like um, Long Island and uh, Brooklyn and Cape Cod. And I uh, thought they were really cool. So I um, wanted to be uh, part of that group, that cool club. Um, I, uh, they, every, every smoking cigarettes, which I thought was pretty cool and neat. So I, uh, so I joined that too. And I just kind of went down this road where, um, I, I started being, being one of the cool kids and wanted to be with that, that group of people. And I felt like it was the first time where I fit in and, um, nobody really knew who I was and I wasn't just this boring, uh, preacher's daughter. So, um, it, college was amazing. I really loved college because it, it really, it gave me um, permission to kind of spread my wings and f- figure out who I was. I was not around my parents or my family for the first time, um, and I loved it. I, did, I never went home for a summer. I stayed in D.C. all through college. Um, it was a good experience. Uh, so college, I was kind of, um, but I, I wasn't crazy. Like I, I still, I still did pretty well in school. So I um, was able to get pretty good grades as uh, partying and having fun and drinking a lot. But I was also pretty involved uh, academically. So I was on, you know, dean's committees and academic councils and, um, you know, involved in leadership. So I kind of had this double life where I was, on one hand, um, pretty responsible. I dated a guy that was very responsible and reliable. Uh, So I was with him part of the time and and very, uh, I was babysitting a little bit in college too. So responsible kid. But then also started to really party and I drank a lot. I experimented with drugs. I was doing ecstasy quite a bit and going to raves in DC and doing some cocaine. Um, not crazy drugs, but, but I was experimenting a little bit. So the first time I was like, Whoa, uh, sounds like college to me. It's so, I mean, (laughs) it's it's like, yeah, it's like just, I'm like, okay, well this sounds like, sounds like college life to me. Totally. I, I I would have stayed in college for 20 years, (laughs) but unfortunately, um, did not, did not have that opportunity or, or financial mm-hmm. ability. So graduated four years and, um, and then I, uh, worked for the sorority I had been in, uh, in college for a year, traveling throughout the country and doing some consulting, which was the coolest job ever. And then go back to DC and, um, and it was kind of like, Whoa, what do, what do I do now? <laughs> and, uh, I kind of wanted to keep the party going and, and, uh, you know, hang out and, and, uh, keep living the way I had been in college. But, um, my friends had already kind of moved on and started going to either, 
you know, grad school or, or taking, you know, getting real jobs or, or moving back to be with their families. So, um, this guy that I had dated in college, uh, we'd been together for three years and, um, he was a really, really nice, good guy who, um, really, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with any brothers and my dad is, uh, kind of a sports fan. So, so here was this guy that was, that was a fun, nice, normal, cool guy who liked sports a lot and got to, to be friends with my dad. So, um, this guy proposed to me, uh, right after college, uh, top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Oh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like this perfect, um, you know, life. This guy's in love with me, and my parents like him, and um, and he wants to marry me. Uh, so we were engaged for a year and planning a wedding, and um, you know, meanwhile I'm back in DC trying to kind of figure out who I am and and find myself again after college. And it just occurred to me that I just was not ready to get married. And I just, I, I don't think I love this guy. I think I wanted to love him and I think I, I liked him. Um, but I don't think he was the person I was supposed to spend my life with. So yep, I um, the first really hard thing, this probably sounds crazy to some people listening, but, but really the first hard thing that I can remember doing in my life is when I was 23 years old and I broke off that engagement five months before the wedding. Uh, because dude, that's hard. It was, yeah, it was hard. There was, it was going to be a big wedding. Um, my parents had spent a lot of money already on dress and invitations and the, you know, all of it. And, uh, and we had bridesmaids and groomsmen and all of it. So it was, it, we were ready to get married and, um, I, I just had to call it off. So that was the first really hard, pretty brave thing I think I did. And, um, after I did that, I really felt horrible. I felt like I had um, broken this guy's heart, really hurt this guy's family, wasted a lot of money from my parents. And um, I went and that was my first kind of shame spiral where I really felt uh, like I'd, I'd really done some, some, something wrong there. Even though I knew it was the right decision, it, it was really hard to trust my God on that one. Uh, but I did it and, you know, kept, kept going through with life. And so I'm living in DC and I'm working a job that I didn't really love, um, on, you know, in DC. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, I get, I got diagnosed with cancer, uh, a few months after that, after I broke up the engagement, um, very early stage, not terminal, not dangerous cancer. It was a cervical cancer that was treated with surgery and, and, um, a little, care afterwards. But, uh, so not, I, I knew I wasn't going to die from this, but it was also the first time where I'd faced a, a health crisis where, um, you know, the doctor was saying things to me like, uh, maybe we should talk about fe- freezing your eggs in case we have to do chemotherapy or, um, you know, just things I had never thought about. Uh, you know, anytime you hear you have cancer, even if they say, you know, stage one, you're going to be fine. Nobody dies from this. It's still like, hey, cancer. Wait, where's my gold slugger? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's not fun anymore. And I, I, so I'm living in DC. I'd broken up this engagement. I had no family there. My friends had all basically left from college. So I was like, ugh, I'm alone here. So a couple months after that, I was, uh, you know, still in DC, and um, 9/11 happened. So 2001, uh, September 11th, and um, I walk out of my office um, and I could see the Pentagon smoke coming from the Pentagon. Uh, I had, I had friends that lived in New York city. I had just been to New York city the weekend before and had stayed in battery park city, the friend that had a, a, an apartment there. So I was really connected to all of it and um, had a friend that worked in the Pentagon and 
uh, spent that day of 9-11 with a guy I was dating and his roommate, um, whose girlfriend worked in the trade center. And we, we spent that day waiting for her call to find out if she was okay. So that was a very traumatic day for me. And uh, that had just, you know, those three things, breaking out the engagement, cancer diagnosis, and 9-11, all kind of being on my own, were really hard. And it was the first time I noticed myself drinking, not for fun. <laughs> you know, in college, I drank for fun and with friends. And after college, when I went through this hard stuff, I would stop at the liquor store on my way home from work and buy a bottle of wine and drink by myself. And wait a minute, wait ever, a minute, hold on. Yeah. Did the yeah. girl call? Oh, yes, yeah, she did. Sorry, sorry to leave you hanging on there. My yeah, she, God. She <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't hear from her till the next day. So it was, it was a hard day. We didn't hear from the next day. But she was, she was fine. She was good. And my friends that, that lived in New York City were all fine. Thankfully, I didn't know anybody personally who, who passed away that day. But it, it was just a, a, a tough day for everybody. Sorry, I, I knew I was I was left no, hanging. My, the listeners are in the car going, "What happened to the girl?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, go she's ahead, fine, go. she's fine. Summer down, everybody. <laughs> All right. All right. So, but thank you for clarifying that. Uh, okay, so bottle once wine. I noticed I was <laughs> bottle of wine, uh, drinking on my own. I started seeing a therapist for some help with it, just to fi- you know to, to figure out what was going on, um, and so therapist uh, was good. And she, she said, I think you're dealing with some depression, anxiety. She sent me to a psychiatrist to get me some meds and some help with all of it. Um, and I, so I went to see the psychiatrist and I uh, went a few times and she, she started me on some meds. And then, um, you know, one day I, I went to her office after I, where I had lunch at the cheesecake factory and had a couple glasses of wine before I went to an appointment in her office. And I mentioned to her, you know, I, I'm drinking a little bit here. <laughs> like I'm drinking wine to try to help with with coping with all this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, the, the, I was taking the Paxil and it felt like the Paxil was making the wine not work very well. So I was needing more and it felt like and I wasn't drinking the way I used to drink and it uh, bothered me. So uh, maybe she could change my meds or something, <laughs> but uh, she, she instead um, opened her drawer and pulled out a card to an outpatient treatment center in Washington, DC. And she handed it to me and she said, I think you should call them and um, they will, they'll help you kind of assess your alcohol situation or, or your drinking. Uh, so, you know, Omar, I was, I was, I've always been such a perfectionist, such a people pleaser, such a, you know, I'll just do whatever anybody tells me to do and I'll show them I can do it better and perfectly. Mm-hmm. So I, I took that card and I said, perfect. I, I left her office. I called that place. Um, they said, why don't you come in tomorrow morning? I said, that's totally fine. I will be there. Uh, so I took, Next couple of days off work, I went there and they, they said, um, why don't you enroll in outpatient treatment for alcohol? And at that point, I don't think I had ever heard the word addiction or alcoholism mm. or recovery or treatment. I had no knowledge of any of it. Um, and I did not think I had a problem. I just thought um, my psychiatrist told me to go to this place where they were going to help me feel a little bit better because I was really struggling with some depression and anxiety. And I was, um, I was, I was drinking alone and I was, a little worried about that, but I never once thought um, I wanted to quit or wanted help with it. It was just like, it was happening pretty fast. And I asked, I was asking for help from some people and wanted to be happier and wanted to not worry so much about all the stuff that was happening and feel so guilty. And somebody said, go to treatment. And I, I didn't ask a lot of questions and I just went to treatment. It was not an inpatient treatment. It was an outpatient treatment. 
but uh, they asked me to start going to some meetings and, and doing some treatment there. And so I just signed up because it was like, all right, what do I have to lose from this? So I was 25 and um, I started going to these uh, treatment sessions, which at first were every day and then kind of tailored off to, um, you know, a couple times a week. And, uh, and then they had a continuing care group that I joined for a year and a half after that. So I, I get sober and they say, you know, stop drinking and take a break from drinking and, uh, you know, do this program. They, they were giving me abuse at that time because they, they had a protocol. They gave everybody that walked in the door abuse. Uh, and they also said, start going to some recovery meetings in the community. So I did. I kind of went full force into this thing. And um, I, they said, you know, alcohol is making your life worse. And I thought, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe it is <laughs> uh, if you say so. But um, there are some cute boys in that treatment center. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll, I don't mind coming here and, yeah. and talking about all this stuff. And, um, it, it, you know, all of a sudden, I, I didn't mind going to, to AA meetings because it felt like, um, you know, in Washington, D.C., there were so many people and meetings, and especially a lot of young people then. This was in like 2000, uh, 2002, 2003. So it, it was a new community. It was like, you know, I'd had my community in college, and um, then they, they kind of disappeared or, or moved away. So, so AA and treatment in, in my 20s then became a new community for me, it became a, a group of people to hang out with. And um, I liked it. I liked AA because, boy, they tell you, you know, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Like, oh, I'll go to 125. <laughs> they say, get a sponsor, done. Uh, call your sponsor every day. Call, I'm going to call her twice a day. Get a service commitment. I'm going to get a job at the AA Clubhouse. It's like AA for, was a way for me to be a perfectionist and do it perfectly and get sober. And I did. I went to a meeting every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, at a clubhouse in D.C., and I got sober. I had a sponsor. I did steps. I did AA perfectly. I did every single thing anybody could ever recommend to me. And um, uh, they said, when you say your name, uh, announce yourself as an alcoholic. And I did. But I just did not really think it through. Like, I did not really. I, I was doing the steps. I was doing all the work. And I was doing the reading and praying. I was going through the motions. But I don't think it really connected. Um, and I think it was just because I, I didn't ever really have any consequences or, or really think that, um, you know, alcohol was that big of a problem for me. Although I could, you know, I could kind of see how it was and it was becoming a problem, but it was just not, not totally connecting for me. Um, so I stayed sober for three years and, uh, and I, my life got better. I bought a condo and I developed some good relationships and friendships. And, um, I, uh, I wasn't depressed or anxious anymore. I did some good therapy. Um, it, life was life was good. And then I applied to grad school, and I um, had been working in nonprofit in DC, um, you know, helping with uh, some organizations that worked with kids. And I liked that, but I wanted to have more direct impact working with people. So I decided I would go to grad school to become a social worker. Um, so I I get into a master's of social work program in DC, and. Um, uh, got accepted and um, was sober. Start grad school, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, for the first time in a long time, I was around people that were not in recovery or were not sober. Uh, people my age, and I was uh, in grad school, which was pretty hard, but also pretty fun. Um, and boy, being back in that school setting, I was like, okay, uh, this is where we drink, <laughs> you know. So 
people were going out to happy hour after, after class. And, um, I went the first year I did not drink. Um, the first year I didn't drink. Uh, but then after that first year, something in my head said, I think I'm, I think I could drink. Maybe I think I could maybe drink like a normal person. Do you not think I'm an alcoholic? I think I had some hard things happen to my, my in my life uh, a few years ago and I quit drinking. But now, you know, then I was on some psychiatric medicine for depression. Then, it, you know, now I wasn't. I think grad school is much, much better place. Um, I'm going to try drinking socially. So I started drinking again at that point. So uh, when I quit drinking when I was 25, um, I called my parents who they lived in Nebraska. I was in DC. I called my parents and I said, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm worried about my drinking. I know you, you don't see an issue or you've never been around it, but like, I, I, I think I drink alcohol a lot. Um, I'm going to quit drinking. And so they, they knew that and um, they were supportive. My parents, don't, neither one of them have an, an alcohol issue or any drug issue. So uh, and we don't have a lot of addiction in my family too. So this is not a, a, a anything that we're very familiar with. Um, so then when I started drinking grad school, I um, didn't really talk about it with people. I mean, most of my friends then didn't know I was sober or that I had been sober. Um, but I, I didn't tell my parents I started drinking again. Um, and I think that's because, you know, I knew if I talked about it, people would be mad at me or would, would question me. And I didn't want people to be mad at me. I didn't want to feel guilty. And I really thought it's not going to be a problem. I don't need to talk about it. It's none of anybody's business. Um, and if, if I was going back, that's probably the one regret I have. Well, one of the major regrets I have early on is that, um, I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell people I got sober a lot of people in my life, you know, college friends, I just, I was embarrassed. I did not want anybody to know that I had an alcohol problem and I did not want people to know that I was sober. And so I did not talk about it. And when I relapsed, I didn't tell people I relapsed either because I didn't want to have that conversation. You know, I think if you get sober, (laughs) sometime in your life, chances are you probably need to be sober for your whole life. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, did, I did not want anybody to talk to me about that. <laughs> so just, just drink. <laughs> so I finished grad school. I, I did. I loved grad school. I, um, I spent some time in South Africa doing a really cool internship and program in South Africa. Um, and I, I drank throughout grad throughout the end of grad school a little bit, but um, it you know at that point I was living in Washington D.C. where I didn't have a car, so you could take the subway, the metro everywhere. Um, so I didn't have any consequences. You know, I had class schedule that allowed me to um, you know take classes later, and I was doing an internship for you know some hours per week, but I wasn't. Um, I didn't have to be at work at eight o'clock. <laughs> I didn't have kids. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have, I didn't live with anybody. So I really, you know, could drink moderately uh, and not have consequences. So it was kind of like, ah, I guess I'm not an alcoholic. Although, you know, pretty quickly I was drinking a bottle or a bottle and a half of wine a night. But uh, mm-hmm. still at, at that point, I was so, I was in so much denial and I rationalized my drinking so much that I really convinced myself that it wasn't a problem. Um, so I finished grad school, start working and life is pretty good. And, um, I meet a guy who, uh, was doing his residency to become a physician. And, um, he was, uh, he was funny and he was smart and he was interesting. He was from, he, he was born in Iran and then moved to America. So he was, um, 
kind of tall, dark, and handsome and uh, exotic. <laughs> and um, and he, he just qualified to be a Jeopardy, so he was he was interesting and had this cool story. <laughs> and uh, I thought, I love well, Jeopardy. He, yeah, I do too, right? So um, uh, I was going to be married to a Jeopardy star. <laughs> totally. Uh, he, they never called him to be on it, but anyway. Oh. So I, uh, yeah, they knew he'd they, he'd run. He's super smart. Uh, the whole system's rigged, probably. Anyway, so we, I start dating this guy and I think to myself, I was about 30, maybe 29 or so. All my friends were married and I thought, this is a good life choice for me. Here, here's this doctor that, um, Jeopardy star <laughs> to be, um, I'm going to marry this guy. So I did, we got married and, um, uh, he, um, it, he, he, there were some red flags initially, <laughs> like, um, he, he was pretty anxious about money and, um, we moved in together and he, he wanted to split the bills, like according to percentage of like, uh, how many phone calls and how many showers he took. There were just some funny rules about money. And I was like, huh, there's oh. a little anxiety here, but it's quirky. It's so cute. It's, it's, you know, going to be fine. Okay. okay. Uh, so, so we get married and, um, we, we moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where he does, uh, his full, you know, four year residency to become a cancer doctor. Um, so we're married, we're working, we're fine. And I, I he knows I drink. I, t- I told him, I said, you know, I, um, I quit, I've had some alcohol issues in the past. Um, and I didn't drink for a while, but I, I drink now moderately. Um, I drink wine and I, I think I have it under control, but if you ever have any you know concerns or issues with it, let me know. And, um, so, uh, there were times pretty early in our marriage where he said, okay, I'm letting you know, I think there's some issues. <laughs> um, but at that point, uh, whoa. That was hard. I, I didn't really mean that. I don't think. <laughs> I just was hoping he wouldn't let me know. So instead of getting help with it, I just said, um, "Okay, I'll, I'll I'll curb it." But then I, I just started hiding it, and I I just didn't. I hid my alcohol from him so he wouldn't have to confront me. And sneaky. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I know I'm not the only one uh, listening right now who's done that, but it's oh, yeah. always embarrassing sneaky, to talk about sneaky, it. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yuck. Uh, so hide it. <laughs> Happy marriage, right? Uh, anyway, so we decided. All right, what do we do? We're going to do. We're going to have a baby. So I've always wanted to be a mom. That's the thing I've wanted more in my life than anything else. So we get pregnant. Um, maybe six months after we got married, and um, something really. I am blessed with a special gift that um, when I am pregnant or when I'm breastfeeding. Alcohol tastes, sounds, smells disgusting to me. Oh. I when I first got pregnant, it was I found I was pregnant on New Year's Eve. I went to New Year's Eve party and I tried to drink, I threw up like after one glass, couldn't drink. So um, that's a that's a huge gift to me. So thank God um, you don't have ten kids yeah. now, All right? <laughs> I guess I go, well, I got yeah. the solution. <laughs> you know, or or I'd be really sober right now. Either, either way, so, yeah, not having any more children. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so get pregnant, stop drinking. And it was like, oh, that was that was a good thing. It, um, I liked being pregnant, um, but the pregnancy was hard. So I, I got put up bed rest for three full months. Um, I had a lot of early labor stuff um, that was really scary. So uh, at that point, I quit my job and just decided to stay home. And my husband was almost done with his residency. It was going to be getting a job anyway. So I'd stay home with this kid and um, Joey, who was born 10 years ago, um, who was a really, really cute, adorable baby who's born he- healthy and fine, um, and a uh, pretty high needs baby, 
kind of colicky and, and cried a lot. And um, my husband didn't handle that well. He did not know what to do with a baby. Um, so he was really anxious around him. And I um, decided that I would meet all of this baby's needs. So like the baby didn't really want to take a bottle. So I just decided I'd breastfeed him uh, all the time, like his whole first year. So we didn't even worry about a bottle. It was just like, all right, I'll just be around the baby which was horrible. I mean, it was good that I could be there for him, but, um, it also meant that I was attached to this baby, uh, you know, every three hours. And, um, it was, it was really hard. I mean, on one hand it was good because I could be this people pleasing codependent person meeting everybody else's needs. Um, but also I, I lost myself pretty quick. Um, so, uh, you know, balancing that I was managing, trying to keep this husband happy and this, this entertaining this baby. And, um, we move. So my husband finishes his education and training and residency and fellowship and all that stuff and gets a job. And he decided to take a job in, in Nebraska where my family was. So we moved back to Nebraska to be closer to my family where he takes a job and we buy a big house. And we um, decide to live the American dream, uh, you know, living in this house. He's working, he's being a doctor and I'm staying at home and I'm taking my baby to baby music classes and I'm watching Yo Gabba Gabba. And I am pureeing my own homemade organic baby food and making homemade organic dinner. And I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> I, mean, I hate to say that because I liked being a mom and I loved my son and I loved my husband and I was, I was making it work, but I was really bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you do? Um, well, why don't you get pregnant again? We thought <laughs> so that'll fix boredom, more babies. So uh, had had a, Decided at that point to have more kids, and um, so uh, got pregnant again, and then went through um, some miscarriages that were really traumatic for me. Um, which st- people don't talk about that a lot, but I had two back-to-back miscarriages, which were um, very upsetting to me and hard to deal with, um, and um, stressful, especially when you have another kid. And you know, when you have miscarriages, it's, so people don't talk about them anyway, but um, if you have a kid and then you have miscarriages, a lot of people think, oh, well, you, why would you have a hard time with that? You have a kid. You should be grateful. Be grateful for what you have. And you are, and I was, but I was also very sad about these things. And um, so then I, we just kind of stopped trying for a while, but then all of a sudden I found out I was pregnant again and um, went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, it's twins. And um, we were not doing any infertility treatments or any kind of treatments for that. It was just a, a fluke. A fluke. And, um, yeah, total fluke. Um, and that was the scariest thing ever because after I kept having miscarriages, being pregnant with twins, I felt like um, oh. now, now two are going to die. Oh, my God. Uh, so terrifying. It was a horrible, horrible, yeah, very yep. terrifying experience. Um, but thankfully, the, the babies arrived and um, were healthy. So I have two kids or two, you know, twins born. So, so then we're, we're living in this house with them. Um, a three-year-old and twins, twin baby infants. And um, if you have any kids, you know that uh, it's, it's hard to have one baby because they're, they're needy and they, they need to have diaper change and be fed. And um, that's a hard thing. And it's hard to have a three-year-old. It's really hard to have twins who are dependent on you and, and crying mm-hmm. all the time. You know, like trying to manage twins, getting them to sleep at night and putting them in their beds and doing the whole like transfer sleeping baby to bed with two kids is freaking impossible. And, um, having a three-year-old who needs you and he's kind of sad that he had you all to himself. And then has got now two kids to share you with. Um, 
And the husband whose job was really stressful, he had to be at work really early. So he would sleep with, with earplugs in. So it was my job to keep everybody quiet and in bed. And um, it was really, really hard. I felt like I was really letting everybody down. You know, I, I lived my whole life trying to be perfect. Um, and, you know, I was doing okay. But here were people that were really needy, who needed a lot for me. And I felt like I couldn't do it right. Like, you know, I'd go get the twins in the morning and it was like, huh, they're both crying. Who gets the first diaper? Who gets the first bottle? Who gets the first bite of food? Uh, I felt guilty all the time. I was miserable. So I breastfed the twins. As soon as the twins turned one, I went to get wine and I needed a break and I needed to get some, some relaxation. So I started drinking again. And, um, for a little while, I, dr- I drank uh, under control um, and, um, and, and, and was aware that I did not want things to get bad. So I, um, I talked to my husband and I said, um, yeah, I'm not happy. I think I need to go back to work. So he agreed that I could do that, but also uh, didn't really understand why I would want to do that because he was this doctor making all this money and providing this great life. Uh, we you know, live in Nebraska. That's not the cost of living. It's pretty affordable. So um, he reluctantly agreed that I could go back to work. Um, and, uh, I, at that point joined a, a, a group to be a therapist. Um, so I was doing a contract therapist role where I could work, um, you know, part-time and so still be home with the kids, uh, which was good because I could get out of the house and, um, you know, have my own thing. And I, I love being a therapist. So that was, it was a good thing for me. It was like, finally, oh, I could talk to adults again yes. and I can help people. Yeah. And being in Nebraska, I started, uh, I connected with some other therapists and I um, developed a really good practice really fast where people wanted to see me and work with me. Um, so that was great. But uh, my husband was also really mad that we were using babysitters and paying for that, for paying for daycare and stuff. So it was like, um, I thought working would make me not want to drink because it was giving me another, you know, something else, a purpose. Um, and it did give me a purpose and I was happier working. But boy, man, I felt guilty all the time then still, because it was like, now I had these crying babies still, but now they're crying when I was leaving for work and crying because I was with the babysitter, they were with the babysitter. And I had a husband who was wearing earplugs to bed, but he was um, now getting mad at me before bed about the money we were spending on a babysitter. So it was was bad. And and then I drank just to cope with that guilt and shut off those voices because it was painful. And I just did not know how to make it work. I, 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 kept trying different things to, to be fulfilled or meet everybody's needs, but it's just, it was a mess. So I drank to cope with it. I would, um, you know, spend the day with the kids, getting them to school or daycare or with sitters. And I would go to work and, and see my clients. Then I would come home, make dinner, uh, get dinner cleaned up, um, give the kids a bath, read to the kids, feed their, uh, sing to the kids, um, snuggle with the kids, put them to bed, clean up, um, then spend some time with my husband. We would watch TV. Uh, then we would, you know, he'd go to sleep early and then I would go downstairs uh, in our family room and I would, you know, have my computer out to do some notes or, or billing for work, but I would get a bottle of wine and I would drink and I'd watch Jimmy Fallon or late night TV and just check out and numb out and breathe. And then I would pass out, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd climb up to bed and pass out with my husband. And, um, I wake up the next morning feeling, feeling irritable and hungover and, uh, you know, start the day all over again. And, um, so 
I can remember thinking to myself, you know, I guess I can keep doing this. <laughs> I, I was trying to ask, I was talking to my husband and saying, this is not happy. Like we're, we're really struggling here. And, um, and he was really unhappy. He was, he was anxious and he was uh, frustrated with life and didn't have a lot of friends or um, outlets. And um, so it was a very frustrating time and I couldn't figure out how to make it better. So I, I, I remember him saying, him saying to me, um, you know, I think we just need to hold on until these kids go to college. When these kids go to college, it's going to happen to save our life. And I remember thinking, well, that's, that's 18 freaking years away. I'm sitting here going, what the, how is that even remotely helpful right now? Right, right. It, it was not so helpful. But, it's like um, saying the same as, you know, someday. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, someday, you know, wow. life. Wow, that's it, craziness. Yeah, it felt like life was about surviving. Yep. And um, and it felt really lonely. And I, you know, at that point, I, I think that's, that's, this would have been like 2012, 2013, when Facebook was really getting big. And um, when you're a doctor's wife and a therapist and a, a mom of three kids, boy, you, I wanted it to look pretty perfect. Like I felt like I had this great life and nothing to complain about. Why should I complain? I, I should be grateful. I should be happy. So I wanted to, to put pictures of my kids up, you know, like moms compare their kids on Facebook. If you put up pictures to show the grandparents how happy you are and how good life is. So, um, I really fell into that. You know, I even had a blog about me and a mom about, you know, look at how cute my kids are. Look at how happy we are. Look at their, um, perfect, cute Halloween costumes. <laughs> and, uh, it was a way that I could try to stay in touch with, uh, feeling like, um, you know, I, I'm doing okay. Like, look at, look at me world. I'm not drinking, passing out um, by myself. Well, my husband's telling me to, we'll be happy in 18 years. I'm, I have cute kids on Facebook. <laughs> um, that was a really hard thing because it, it, it really did not serve me because on the outside, I looked really good and I looked really happy, but on the inside, I was just dying inside. Yeah. Yeah. I was in so much pain. So, um, you know, this went on for a little while until, I went on for about, I would say, a year, 18 months-ish. And um, over the course of time, I noticed myself getting uh, physically dependent on alcohol. You know, I'd been into treatment and in meetings uh, 10 years earlier, so I knew some of the symptoms and signs about what to expect. And I noticed myself waking up shaking or feeling a little shaky and sweaty and, um, and irritable. So uh, I, I was concerned. Um, I didn't have any consequences. Nobody confronted me about my drinking. Not one person did. Uh, but I, I became concerned and it felt like this is not going to get better and this is going to get worse. And I needed a break from all of it and I knew I needed to stop drinking. So there was one Sunday when the twins were um, three and my son, uh, yeah, twins were three. My older son was six. And I called my, my husband in the room and I said, I am drinking more than I told you. And I think I am addicted to it and I'm shaking and I'm really freaking scared right now. Um, and I, I think I need help. And um, he was mad. He, he was mad that I'd been hiding it. He was mad that it had, he, he thought I'd let it get out of control. And um, so he, was, he, he didn't like any of it. He just wanted me to, I don't know what he wanted. But I, I, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd gone to treatment before. So I knew that that would help me. So I, um, and I just, I, th- I needed a, 
a break from life. And so I advocated and asked to go to, to inpatient treatment and I researched different treatment options. And I found one that our insurance covered at Hazelden in Minnesota. And I signed myself up and I had a friend take me up there and I hired a babysitter to help take care of the kids while I was gone. And I left and um, I went for 28 days to, to Hazelden to get sober. And I did. And um, when I was there, uh, it became clear to me that um, I was in a pretty bad marriage and a pretty bad situation and um, that I, I needed to really kind of, you know, revisit a lot of the stuff. And um, uh, I heard that and I started seeing things and I started recognizing myself and other women that were at treatment. Um, but I didn't know how to, how to change the things, you know, like my husband came up for family weekend or family week. He was so mad. He did, he wouldn't make eye contact with me. And my, you know, my counselor tried to talk to him and tried to talk to both of us. And, um, and she said, you know, I just think he needs more time and, and he needs to understand this. And you know, he's, he's from a Middle Eastern culture where, um, in Iran, people that are alcoholics are kind of uh, they look at them as, as immoral, bad people. And so he, he had that judgment and he didn't want anybody in his life or family to know that I was an alcoholic. He didn't want to be married to an alcoholic. And um, you know, I, don't, I don't blame him. I wouldn't want my wife to be an alcoholic either, but he was mad. And um, he didn't want to, he didn't want me to go to meetings or support that. He just wanted it to go away. Um, I really let him down. So um, after treatment, I came home and um you know, in my 20s, I had tried to do uh, recovery perfectly and, you know, do the 125 meetings in 90 days. Well, when you're a mom of three kids and you're a wife of a husband who's mad at you and he doesn't want to put the kids to bed and he will not pay for a babysitter. And, um, you know, I had a, when I, I had a private practice as a therapist, had a private practice, I was trying to keep that surviving. Um, and you have all these balls in the air it is really, really hard to do recovery the way people suggested, um, especially when you're a perfectionist. Because, you know, in my 20s, I could go to meetings every day at seven o'clock in the morning and I could hang out with people from recovery and go to, you know, go to picnics and softball games and, and do recovery and have service commitments. But as a mom of three little kids and a, a doctor's wife and a private practice owner and a, living a life, I felt like I was half measuring it. <laughs> It was really hard for me to do recovery. It was hard for me to, I was trying to do an outpatient treatment program. I was trying to go to meetings every day. I was trying to work with a sponsor. I was trying to do steps and I was trying to, to do all the things I knew I needed to do and take all the suggestions. Um, but man, I couldn't do it perfectly. And it felt like people were always mad at me. It felt like my sponsor was always saying, why can't you go to a meeting today? And I would say, because my husband won't watch the kids and I have to take that, like I have to be with them. And I tried everything. Like I, would, I took the kids to meetings with me. Um, I had bought tons of coloring books and had them sit in the back and be quiet. But they weren't, sometimes they weren't quiet enough. People in the meetings were mad at me for doing that. I went to meetings with daycare, but there were very limited meetings with childcare. So it was very, very hard. And um, I, I really struggled with that. And I, I spent eight months after treatment trying to survive this life of being sober and doing it the way everybody told me to do it and failing. <laughs> And feeling like I was always doing it wrong and yep. people were always mad at me and I was miserable. I had no peace, no joy, but I was following all the rules and I was so confused because I felt like this worked for me in my 20s. I know what I need to do and I'm trying to do my best right now, but nobody seems to, to understand. <laughs> and, um, you know, and also, you know, treatment, I, I 
I learned that I, I kind of started seeing things in my marriage that weren't health, healthy or good. And um, then at that, after treatment, I came back and it was like, I don't, I don't know how to fix it. Like he wouldn't go to therapy. He wouldn't go. He, he did six Allen on meetings. It was like, ugh. you know, he would try a little bit and I would try. And it was just like, um, and I would try to take the kids all weekend, every weekend to give him a break so that he could have some downtime since I've been away. Um, it was just, it was a mess. So we had a holiday party, um, eight months after into my sobriety and, uh, we had all these people over to our house and, um, as for the rotary club <laughs> and, uh, it was like, look at my perfect Christmas tree and look at my, uh, <laughs> husband and my husband, he didn't want me to tell anybody I'd been to treatment. So nobody knew I was sober. I was just not drinking. People probably thought I was pregnant again. So that, at the end of that holiday party, I was cleaning up and um, there were some glasses of wine that people had left in different rooms and I was taking them to the kitchen and I drank them because I just needed a break. I was pissed off. I was mad. I, was, I felt like I'd been working so hard at this stupid thing and it was not getting better. I was like, fuck this. I'm done. I went out. And I never, I, I didn't intend, it wasn't an intentional relapse. I was like, oh, can I be sneaky or I'm going to relapse? It was like, I didn't even think about it. I saw those wine, I just drank it. And I, um, I went to bed and then, you know, the caterer had left a couple bottles of wine from that party at our house. So and it, it was a couple weeks. I didn't drink anything. But then one night I was like, I'm going to drink that wine. So I drank a bottle. And then like a week later, I drank another bottle and then I started drinking again. And um, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody I relapsed. I was, um, I wasn't really going to meetings. Like I was kind of, you know, slipping in and out and talking to my sponsor, but I was just done. And I didn't want anybody to know how bad it was. Like I, I just, I didn't want to talk about it because I did not want to stop drinking. I felt helpless. I felt stuck. I felt like either I can drink or I can do this miserable sobriety life. And those are my choices. I didn't want either one of those. So I was pretty, I was uh, stuck for a few months there. We went to Disney World as family, happiest place on earth. <laughs> and um <laughs> and I drank there and um and I I was pretty messy there. It was embarrassing. And um and that made my husband really mad. And he called my sponsor from that trip. He started talking to my sponsor and he called my sponsor and he said, She's a mess. Um, she's embarrassing me. And uh um he was he was mad. So I came back uh from Disney World and um I met with my sponsor and her sponsor and got honest about everything. And um, they had an intervention with me where they said, um, if you stay in this marriage, you are not ever going to get sober or stay sober. You need a divorce. I know it's embarrassing. I know it's hard, but this is what you need to do. And you need to come to meetings with us and uh, pick up another white chip and, and do this all the right way. So I did. I got sober. Um, didn't go to treatment. I stopped drinking. I went, got my other, another white chip. I, um, announced, you know, my relapse. I told other people in my life what was going on. And, um, 11 days into that, I filed for divorce from my husband who, um, did not want to get divorced. Even though he wasn't happy, he didn't want it. He didn't want to change it. So he reluctantly, uh, agreed to leave the house and we separated. Um, and then the next two years of my life were, were hell. <laughs> so, um, he moved out and, and, uh, it was a messy, messy divorce. Um, he fought about a lot of things. There were a lot of things I didn't know about that were happening in the marriage with the finances. Um, he took care of everything and I was really 
bad with money and not aware of what was happening. So I, I didn't know any of it. And I was drunk some of the time. So I, maybe I just didn't notice it. Um, there are a lot of things that came out in that divorce that I, I had no idea what were happening in that marriage financially. Um, and all of the judge um, right away said, uh, we're going to do 50-50 custody as a temporary arrangement. So I'd make kids half the time. When I, I'd been the one putting those kids to bed, he'd never put those kids to bed, but he had, he had them half the time all of a sudden. Um, and the judge said to me, because I was self-employed, I'm self-employed as a therapist, so I, I own my, my own business. And um, the judge said, well, you know, you don't have pay stubs or a W-2 or a salary, so you're going to have to show me bank statements. So for five years, every month, bank statements. So I had to prove all of this stuff with my income. And um, it, took a, it took about five months before the, the uh, judge would order any child support or spousal support. But he also said, um, you have to stay in the house, the marital house. I mean, you get to, that's your, you get it. Uh, you have to pay the mortgage. You have to pay taxes. You have to pay in the insurance. It was a big house, a lot of money. And, um, and I was so, so stuck and so stressed. So I was trying to work a lot because I, I needed to make money so I wasn't getting any child support. I had three kids under the age of 10. I get to get to half the time. So I've got weekends without the kids at all with their dad. And um, everybody was fighting. And uh, people in my life, you know, I I didn't know anybody who'd been through a divorce. And my friends were not, you know, nobody knew what divorce meant. They were scared. Um, It was a really hard time. And I just drank because I didn't know. I I relapsed and and drank because I just did not know how to deal with that stress. I tried. I went to to meetings and talked to my sponsor a little bit. But I I was way stuck in victim place then and felt so scared and so sad and so guilty. Like I was ruining my kids' lives. And um, the only way I could quiet all that, that noise down in my head was to drink. So I drank and, um, and then uh, just kind of tried to hold on. It was like, I was trying to manage my divorce. Um, just trying to take it one day at a time. And um, uh, I thought I just have to get this done. Like, uh, a friend of mine from from a different city had been divorced, and she her divorce was fine on thirty seven days. So I thought, let me just get this done, and then I'll worry about the drinking after. Uh, but it, the divorce kept going on and on. Like subpoenas were being sent, and um, you know things were being ordered, and uh, affidavits, and different. There were so many uh, things that just kept happening and piling on. It was just getting messier and messier, and I was drinking, and and uh, and then I realized that I was. Um, getting addicted again. And I thought, well, this is messy. So I don't, I don't want to shake anymore. So I thought I need to quit drinking because it's not going to make it better. So I researched treatment and I found a, a program that's, a, it was in my state in Nebraska, that's a seven day detox. So I called them and I said, I need to come in for seven days and I need this alcohol out of my system. And I need to stop shaking so I can get divorced. And um, they said, okay, come in. <laughs> so I drove, I didn't tell anybody in my whole life that I was going to that detox because I didn't want anybody to know because I didn't want that judge to give me less custody. I didn't want my ex-husband to find out. So I just packed up and left and told, I told a babysitter that I was going to a conference or something. Um, and I left and I, um, I drank a, a, a wine on my way to that uh, detox and, um, bam, got pulled over for DUI. Oh, on my way to oh dude which um, is exactly what I did not need at that oh. point in the middle of this horrible, horrible, messy divorce yep. where I was trying to hide all of it. So I get this DUI. I go to treatment for seven days. 
I come out of treatment and then it's like, all right, well now you're sober and I'm still dealing with the messy divorce. I'm still dealing with um, the custody issues. I'm still dealing with the financial issues. And now I got this DWI on top of it. I've got to go to probation and blow in some stuff. And, and uh, you know, take, I have a legal, I have, I'd never even gotten a speeding ticket. So all of a sudden I've got this legal issue that's really embarrassing. I did not want anybody to know about it. Um, and then all of a sudden I got an email that uh, from my attorney one day that my husband had found out about the DUI and treatment and they were seeking more custody. And, um, you know, if I would have been smarter, I would have gone to a meeting and talked about that. But what I do instead, I was at Target and I bought a bottle of wine to, to, to drink to, because I, I got scared out of my mind. And um, it was horrible. So started drinking again after the DUI, which was messy and embarrassing and stupid. Um, and I was tr- then I was trying to manage going to probation in the morning to be clean. I had something in my car I had to blow in, which if anybody out there has ever had a DUI and has to blow into their car and is still drinking, it was a painful, scary, horrible, exhausting experience where I bought myself a breathalyzer at home to test my my alcohol content before I'd get in the car and just like, or I'd take an Uber and then, you know, the kids, I would take an Uber with the kids and then their dad was finding out it was so messy and horrible. And I, ugh. It's so embarrassing talking about it now. So, you know, it just got, it got worse. I was trying to manage all of it. And um, that went on for about nine months. And at the end, well, and in that nine months, I went to treatment again for an inpatient treatment, came out, relapsed, could not get any sober time together. I would manage a few weeks, just get scared and feel helpless. I was, I was pretty hopeless at that point, pretty suicidal. I wanted out. I wanted done. I was, I was so over it. I didn't see any hope or any kind of future. I was just scared and tired of it. And um, and so at the end, I started drinking vodka because somebody had told me at one point, you can't smell vodka. And I thought, well, uh, all right, maybe I have less calories than the wine I was drinking. Oh, my so God. I was I started drinking vodka and mixing it with, you know, things like Gatorade or lemonade. And um, I'd always been a wine drinker my whole life. Uh, occasionally beer, that gold slugger early on, but mostly wine. So I, I didn't know how to control vodka and it was not predictable for me. So, um, you know, sometimes I drink vodka and I was absolutely fine. I was not even that drunk. And then sometimes I'd drink it and I'd be passed out or, you know, totally out of control. So um, it got messy fast and uh, there was a, a, I was sober and then there was a two week relapse where um, I was, I drank on Memorial Day weekend. Um, my, I had the weekend to myself and then um, my husband brought the kids on that Monday, Memorial Day. And I'd, you know, had a couple drinks that morning to kind of study my nerves. And he, he dropped the kids off and he suspected I was drinking, although he didn't say anything and he left the kids. But uh, he sent a babysitter over that afternoon to see if I was drinking. And um, so she came over and um, took the kids out of my house that day. After I'd, I, earlier in the day, I'd, I'd passed out with the kids there. Mm. Um, and I had, a, and there was another adult there that was with me and helping, but it was, it was messy it was embarrassing and um, it was painful. It's painful to um, know that my kids saw me like that. And um, and it was painful to, to have a babysitter come in and see me like that. And um, it was like something that I had really tried to do, you know, at night on my own and not, not have people see me like this. It was all of a sudden, it was just, I couldn't control it. And um, it was awful. And uh, so... Babysitter takes the kids out of my house and I just 
I went to bed. I, I was just, I was so, so broken. So went to bed. The next morning, my divorce attorney calls me and says, um, this got to change. You're going you're gonna to lose your kids. Uh, you have to do something about this. And it has to be different because whatever you're doing isn't working. You're not taking it seriously. So um, I called the treatment center to detox where I'd been before in, in Nebraska. And I told him what was going on. And I'd just been there for treatment like three months earlier. So they weren't thrilled to hear from me. And uh, I said, um, I'm in a mess. Um, drinking. I can't stop drinking vodka. Uh, I'm going to lose my kids. I don't know what to do. And the counselor uh, said to me, well, I don't know what to tell you because this is not working for you. You keep trying this and it's not working. And so what's going to be different this time? And um, I didn't know. I didn't know what would be different or what, what I needed different. I just... I needed help. I was so done. I didn't know what to do. So she, she said um, she'd known a couple of women and had worked with them and they had gone to treatment at this program in Arizona. She said, I think you should try it. Would you be willing to do that? It's more, it's a longer program. It's like 10 weeks. But would you be willing to do that? And I said, yes, absolutely. So I told everybody I was going to this program in Arizona. I called my attorney. Um, I said, I'll do this thing. I'll go now. I, I called the program and I, it was, I paid out of pocket like $3,600 on my credit card that day. And I decided I'd drive myself. Uh, I had a, the interlock thing on my car to protect the car from you know me not dri- driving and drinking. So I just thought, I'm just going to drive down there to Arizona all on my own. So I, I did. Um, and I checked into this program where it was a... Um, it's called the the legacy program. It's all women. Uh, there's a you go to an outpatient treatment center um, during the day, and then you live in a house uh, with um, ten women. And it's part of the Carla Vista program, which is a kind of nationwide uh, network of of sober houses. So very restrictive. You live in this house with the same women, and you go to treatment during the day, and then you go to meetings at night. It's twelve step based. You work with sponsors. And um, you have tours, and uh, it's very restrictive. So uh, no freedom. You can't even walk out the front door um, on your own. You can't go for a run or jog or a walk. You have to stay in the house. They take you to the gym, and they take you tanning, and they take you other places for outings, but they, um, they, they make you follow the rules. So uh, that was hard. On one hand, it was embarrassing. Like I, I would have to have things notarized for the divorce, and I'd have to... Um, you know, call somebody to have them print it for me and then pack everybody up in the druggy buggy and have our supervisor drive us over to the bank or to the, you know, an office to get something notarized and then faxed. And um, we had to go shopping, grocery shopping at Walmart. And uh, um, it was very restrictive. And uh, it was embarrassing, but it was also humbling. And um, it was the first time where, you know, somebody told me, like, you're going to get up at, at six and you're going to pray. And then you're going to do some tours around the house. You make breakfast, then you're going to go to treatment, then you're going to come home, then you make lunch, then you're going to read the big book, you're going to highlight this in pink and this in yellow, then you're going to call your sponsor, then you're going to do another tour. (laughs) And uh, so it was like, people told me what to do the whole day. I just did it. I just put my head down and I did whatever they told me to do because 
I did not want to lose my kids. And I did everything I had to do. And I have not had a drink since before I went to that program in Arizona on June 1st, 2017. Oh, that's what, oh, that's the place then. That's what worked. Yeah, that's what, well, that's what's worked to this point. And um, yeah, that's, it was, it has worked. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Sheesh. Hannah. Oh my God. Yeah. What? It's it's been a long journey because your son's 10. Mm -hmm. Which -hmm. means you've been battling with your alcoholism for how many years? Well, my first drink was when I was 18. So um, off and on, I mean, the three years sobriety and then uh, about four years there, I wasn't drinking because I was pregnant or breastfeeding, you know. So uh, a good seven years of um, of struggle. Seven years battling it out, yeah. battling it out. Yeah. So mm-hmm. here's what's kind of so – there's so much in your story. And um, – the 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 thing is that it's really impossible to stop doing the one thing that is soothing you the one thing yeah. that is soothing this tremendous state of just fear and anger and anxiety and bitterness and resentment is just this constant and regret and so you've got all these negative emotions that when you're sober the intensity just rises and rises and rises until ultimately you have to soothe. Yeah. It's impossible to be yeah. able to like take it all in. And then you're raising three children. You're raising mm-hmm. three children basically by yourself and in a dysfunctional marriage. So yeah. the thing is, where do you begin? Mm-hmm. Where do you begin and how do you go from, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea how to get sober. I have no idea how to raise my kids and get sober and be married and run my practice and, 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 and. So ultimately, I go to the legacy program. Mm-hmm. I spend 10 weeks there. Mm-hmm. I get my foundation. What's changed? What's allowed you to get 14? Is it 14 or 16 months? What's allowed you to get 16 months? What's different? What's changed? Um, well, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure yet. Uh, although I know it's, it's a significant change and I, Mm -hmm. I've I've been trying to figure it out. And, um, one thing changed is that I finally did the first step. I finally surrendered and, and accepted exactly, you know, what, alcohol meant and uh, mm-hmm. that I, I I knew I couldn't go back to it. I just gave it up and, and knew I had to look at never having it back in my life again. This has to change. Mm-hmm. That was one thing. Um, I had a sponsor when I was in Arizona who was a, a better sponsor than I've ever had. She took mm-hmm. me through the steps in a different way. Um, so that's one thing that changed. Um, and then uh, when I came back to Nebraska, um, our judge had appointed somebody called a, a guardian ad litem who was a, an advocate for our kids in the divorce. And so she was somebody that got to know both me and my ex-husband and the kids. And she kind of looked at the whole situation and um, she was hugely supportive of me. So um, she actually uh, advocated for us to, um, 
you know, she, she said, um, I, th- I think you're a good mom. I think you're trying, I think you can do this and I believe in you and I don't want to take your kids away from you. So, um, she absolutely was concerned and said, you got to get your shit together. But, um, she also didn't want to take the kids away. And I, I knew that she had a little faith in me. So she was a huge part of my story. Um, she suggested that we use this thing called the sober link, which is a handheld Bluetooth device, um, that, uh, it sends me tests, um, alerts where I have to do a, a breathalyzer test, uh, you know, three times a day. And, um, so I, uh, I'm prompted from my cell phone. I get a, an alert and then I have to do a breath test. That's, uh, super, super sensitive. It's 0.000 mm-hmm. accuracy. Um, and as soon as I do it within 15 minutes, a report of my sobriety is emailed to, um, my ex-husband to the attorneys and judge. So, there's huge accountability where, um, I agreed to do this thing for a year. Um, and I've done it. Uh, I've never had a positive test or missed test on this thing. Um, I, I still do it. Um, so the accountability was there. Um, and then, um, a couple, I, I, I did a few other things and I don't know if they've been good or bad or, or right or wrong, but they, they're part of my story. So, um, when I got back from Arizona, I was so embarrassed, um, that I really could not leave my house. I mean, I was so horrified. Uh, for 15 years, I had um, not really been honest with people that I had had a problem with alcohol or had been to treatment. And um, when I came back, everybody knew. It, everybody knew because I'd been gone for a long time. Um, people, rumors were going around. My ex-husband had told a lot of people. My parents had told people. Um, my sponsor from AA had told a lot of people, my staff. So everybody knew and I could not hide anymore. So I I was I had a month where um, I was given only partial custody where I had weekend visits. Um, so I'd go visit my kids at school and um, have to do this breath test, and uh, like the, the other parents would stare at me, and um, I felt so much shame. Uh, so it was really embarrassing, and um, and somebody suggested that I try this boxing thing. Um, so I went to this boxing gym where I I'd, I'd never really exercised in my life, so I. This was new to me. I didn't know gym people. So I could go to this place that was not by my house. It was like 20 minutes away. Um, and I didn't know anybody there. And I could just stare at a bag and just hit it. And um, I did that. And it, that, that worked. It was like, oh. So I, you know, I, I, I started going to AA when I got back. But um, I was so embarrassed even to go to AA because I kept, God, I I'd I'd go in those rooms and pick up a white chip so many times. I was horribly embarrassed. and. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I tried AA so many times that, um, it hadn't worked for me or, or I hadn't worked for it. And so I thought I'm going to do this differently now. So I started listening to podcasts. I started reading, I started doing some meetings online and some support connecting with other sober women. Um, and I went to boxing and, um, I prayed and I started doing some meditation and journaling. And then I, I, I've seen a therapist through this whole time. I started seeing a therapist seven years ago. I see her every week and I started going to her and saying, I need to figure this out. I need to, to change my whole life. And um, I don't want to ever go back to that person again. So did some major therapy. And um, about six months later, I had uh, lost 60 pounds. <laughs> and um, Incredible. Uh, with, I mean, I, I was trying, I guess, but that wasn't why I started going to boxing. It just kind of happened. Um, so I started, I looked really different. And, um, so, you know, pe- almost people couldn't recognize me. People yep. thought I looked 10 years younger. Yes. Uh, and you I do look 10 I years felt younger. much better. 
yeah. I uh, started going to yoga, so I was I was just feeling much more centered and grounded. And um, then uh, you know, share was a huge part of it too, because I was connecting with people and and be able to do a little service and, and talking to people and, and connect with people, um, you know, on the, on that group and a couple other groups that I was involved with. And um, and and also that year, last year, you know, the, this Naked Mind book came out with Annie Grace, and I started hearing more about people that were. Uh, giving up alcohol um, earlier than I had, and it was it it was kind of seeming to become like a health thing. And so I I got I was inspired and thinking, oh maybe you know sobriety can be cool. <laughs> like I thought maybe I do, if I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life, I have to find a way to to do that and not be embarrassed about it. So what am I going to do? And I started just trying to think about how I could not be so embarrassed. You know, when I was in AA and um and was anonymous. It was a really good way for me to hide um, because I thought, I mean, AA gave me permission not to talk about my recovery. So I was able to be anonymous and, and, and uh, you know, keep to myself and not tell people I was giving up drinking. Um, and I think in one way, that was my way of, of keeping the door open. Like if not everybody in my life knew I was sober, then I could drink at some point, like at a college reunion or um, down the road. Maybe I could leave that door open. I was really nervous about telling people I didn't drink anymore and being sober. Uh, but I, um, I think I was about five or six months, but I, and I decided to out myself on, um, social media to all my friends and family and uh, on my whole network. And I started talking about it. So that's what I think that maybe the biggest shift is that I was honest about it. And I was, uh, cause the minute I was honest about it, I, I did it on a Saturday night. I linked an article about sobriety and I said, I identify as an alcoholic. I'm in long-term recovery. And, um, I expect I went to bed that night expecting to wake up the next morning, have about a hundred fewer friends, and said I had more comments and support than I've ever had um, on social media. People were inspired. Some people knew some of it, some people didn't, some people were um, you know, surprised, some people weren't, but everyone was supportive and everybody was proud of me. So that inspired me to share a little bit more and get a little bit more um vocal about my recovery and um started sharing a little bit more articles and, and then um over time, I just started sharing my whole story on Facebook and I started an Instagram account kind of talking about my transformation and what's happened for me. And um, the local paper in Omaha did a story about my son and I, I, I started taking my um, son, my oldest, to boxing with me. And so they did a story about us kind of surviving divorce and, um, uh, and doing boxing and getting healthy together and, and doing a healthy mom-son uh, activity. Uh, the door is finalized, and um, I uh, th- it was a trial. It was we settled like right before the trial in the courtroom. But I I went to that trial last year on Halloween, and I posted about it in the share community before I went that morning. I said I'm really nervous. Um, this is scary. There's a lot of money and stakes and custody and houses and stuff is involved in this divorce. And I went in that courtroom, and um, I was the only woman in that whole room. There were ten men. The judge. There were like four attorneys were all men, um, the court reporter, um, and my dad, who um, my ex-husband uh, subpoenaed my dad to testify against me. And uh, my dad went to court. So my dad was that courtroom on the other side. I was the only woman. And um, I sat there and held my head up. And I uh, was five months sober. And because I'd been boxing and because I'd been, you know, really trying to do this thing, I felt like an ounce of 
of self-respect and I held my head high and I fought for what I deserved. And the judge awarded me half of everything. And he said, you have been through hell and you keep, you keep coming back and you keep showing up and you won't go away. And I'm proud of you and you get half of everything. And I walked out of that courtroom feeling the self-respect and feeling respected for the first time in my whole life. So that was a huge thing for me to be able to, to survive that whole thing, survive the divorce after everything that had happened, all the relapses, the mess. I mean, it was a, the messy divorce, mostly because of me, because I, I didn't get my shit together and kept relapsing and drinking and it was, it was horrible. So that was a part of it. Um, That's HP so. baby. It's total HP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Definitely HP. So, so, see, this is a Cinderella story. Um, and the thing about a Cinderella story is a lot of times people just fast forward to when the prince whisks her away, but they forget about all the times, the years that she spent slaving underneath her sisters, and her wicked stepmother. Years mm -hmm. and years and years. And it takes that. It takes all that struggle before you're able to get to the other side. Really appreciate what makes up life. What, what is it? What's, what's really important in life? Um, and so it looks like the divorce settles, mm -hmm. custody battles over, you get half of everything. What? How about the child care now? Do you have a nanny? Do you have help with the kids? How does that look? Yeah, so I um, have the kids half the time, and I do have a I have uh, three babysitters that help, and um, uh, that's been great. I've I've had to learn how to ask for help a lot. Um, the kids all go to school um, really close to me, a public school. That's great. I'm close to their teachers. Um, and, and, uh, and surprisingly, now, um, the kid's dad and I are, are uh, pretty friendly. We get along pretty well. Um, he got remarried in August. Um, and, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm actually happy for them. I like her. She's, a, she's really um, good to my kids. And um, you're, you did your episode with your um, with your daughter's mom. And that was yep. really, it was at a really important time for me. I heard that episode and I um, was really trying to work through this stuff and, and let go of a lot of my own anger and fear. And it, that helped a lot. So thank you for that. Uh, it's my belief that um, I want my kids to have a, a happy life. And, and if we can all get along and the more people that love my kids, the better. So um, that's, that's, that's been good. So he, we've been pretty helpful to each other about, you know, helping when we, when we need that. So, and then I, I just try to, I'm lucky. I have a private practice. I'm a therapist. So I, my private practice survived and, um, I was super, I was also super nervous about, um, you know, disclosing my, my, all of this and telling my story and what it would do to my practice. Because I thought nobody would ever want to see me as a therapist if they knew what a mess I was. And I have been shocked because the exact opposite thing has happened. Like I, I shared my story in the paper and then I started sharing on social media and, since then, I've had to hire three therapists to take all of our calls because we are um, swamped and my practice has exploded. So um, 
I have expanded my business and uh, hired extra people to help me. I've taken an intern and I'm training her. Um, and we are doing this differently. Like most therapists are uh, blank slates where they don't share much about themselves. And um, I understand that. Uh, but also in this day and age of social media and um, Google, it's impossible to, to be total blank slate and hide your identity and, and not disclose anything. So um, I've just kind of been experimenting with this. And um, and it's it's been huge. I've gotten tons of patients who are more willing. I mean, people that come see me for for therapy now, just like they disclose a lot more and, and are more real in therapy sessions because they know that I do it. I think they see me as more human. And so they're more able to, to relate to me and it's really changed the way I practice. So um, recently my intern and I, we, I do supervision with her once a week and, um, and we're pretty funny because <laughs> we're, we have a lot in common. We just gab and talk. It's I, I meet with her once a week and talk to her about, you know, how to do therapy and do, I sit down in her session, she's on mine. So she said to me uh, recently, you know, we should record these sessions and do podcasts. So um, we're doing that. <laughs> so um, we are launching a podcast soon that's called Broken, where we're talking about um, uh, a couple of things. We're talking about what happens when we feel broken. How do we get up from that place? We're talking about our own stories. We're talking about um, broken relationships, broken homes, <laughs> broken families, um, and how sometimes things really have to break to get better. Um, and we're also talking about breaking the rules, like breaking the rules of being a therapist, breaking the rules of recovery, um, doing it differently, thinking outside the box. Um, you, you say about the Cinderella expense, uh, the Cinderella story where, um, you know, having a prince come and rescue me. <laughs> uh, there's no prince, you know, like I'm single now and I, um, I'm okay that way. Um, but, you know, doing life on my own with my kids and raising three kids by myself, is not what I wanted or what I envisioned for my life. And I, I hope it's not that way forever kind of, but also it's, it's, it's working and I feel really good about the kind of mom I am. And I feel really good about how well my kids are doing. My son just, my, the 10 year old who was, um, had a hard time with me drinking and under, understandably was very insecure and, um, uh, and anxious. Um, he is, done a complete 180 from boxing and our relationship and some therapy of his own. And he um, was one of eight kids elected to student council two weeks ago. Um, so he's, he's been a great kid. So, and has really done well. Uh, so just, we're looking at all this, this, this stuff about kind of breaking the rules and, and being happier and, um, and being more honest about your life. So um, it's all really fitting together. And I'm just so, so grateful for where I am and for what I've been through and for everybody that supported me and the, um, and all of it now. Well, Hannah, the reason why I asked you that question mm -hmm. about what has changed, what is different now. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you listen, all the elements for, for those of you that are listening, this could have changed many, many years ago. Sorry. Yep. So much, <laughs> so much of the veil of shame and stigma behind addiction and alcoholism and what our roles are and what you should be doing and all this, this guilt and this giant burden that Hannah and her husband carried. Neither one of them knew what to do. He didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do. No one's to blame, but it's still not working. Because the communication is non-existent. 
There's no way to communicate effectively because he's thinking, what is wrong with you? You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Hannah's thinking the same thing. I'm not getting the support that I need. I'm not getting the help that I need. I'm trying. And guess what? Nothing's changed. She's got her, th- mm-hmm. she's got her practice. He's got his practice. Still got three kids. Still have the responsibility. But things are different now. The only thing that's changed is the ability to communicate. The communication has changed between them, but it had to go through just this complete breakdown of the whole machine. The whole machine had to break down. The marriage had to dissolve. A messy, nasty divorce to get to a point where you heard it yourself. If you stay in this marriage... You're never going to get sober because you, you guys are too far into it. Divorce happens. I go to the legacy program. I get my foundation. But the thing that's not there anymore is the relationship. The big thing that's no longer the giant issue is our relationship and our inability to come to terms on how to raise the kids, how to take care of the kids, and more importantly, how to take care of myself. What happened was I was making my list of things that you were doing. And so I started listening to podcasts. I started going to meetings. I started boxing, journaling, yoga, therapy, self-care, 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 self-care. If we would have introduced that into the equation five years ago and said, honey, okay, here's, whoa, you're a full-blown alcoholic. We need help. We gotta, let's go into, let's go into problem solving mode. We need help with the kids. We need you to go to treatment. We need you to go do this. Like imagine hindsight being 2020. If you're listening to this right now, recognize that you could just be two millimeters away from a solution. If you're just able to communicate properly, this, this whole story is for anyone who's married and buried in the disease. Buried in the shame, buried in the problems, unable to communicate, unable to find your way through and recognizing if I can't come to terms with my spouse, I got to get the hell out of here and I have to heal first and I have to get my foundation first and I have to take care of myself first because that's what you did. You did all of this. You were forced to because if you didn't, there's no way you'd be able to be where you're at right now. No, there's not. You showed up at that courtroom a different woman because you had the time and the space and the support to do it, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I could not have shown up that way before. It took everything, every part of this to get to that point. Uh, Sometimes you have to get out of the marriage. Sometimes you have to get out of the dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Even though now they're getting along, that's because he went through his battle, she went through hers, and, and, and they had to do it alone. You guys had to do it separately because together you were killing each other. Yeah. You, you know, you'll hear um, the Gottman therapy model talks about um, the four horsemen relationship. And the one that really is the killer is uh, once you can 
sense that there's that one person in the relationship or both, but especially one person has contempt for the other person uh, and contempt being um, just a, a disdain and a, mm-hmm. no hope and yeah. kind of disgust um, that, that had happened. And um, I think it's, impo- it's nearly impossible to recover from that. And it's just, it, and when that has sets in, there's, it's just shame and anger and resentment and no communication, no trust, no respect. It's so so hard to recover from that, and it just perpetuates the drinking, or the addiction, or or the the shame, and all of it. So, and hindsight, hindsight, hindsight being twenty twenty, yeah. Would you have filed for divorce sooner? Oh gosh, um, I don't, I don't, I really don't know. I, um, yeah, I mean, the hindsight twenty twenty, I think I would have um, learned how to communicate earlier okay. or um you know gone to gone to couples therapy earlier okay um i i still i in the end you know i'm glad i'm divorced i don't i don't think it ever would have worked but um but god you know i my dad his parents are divorced and and he, i growing up i always heard that he feel like he felt like you know divorce ruined his life and uh, was horrible and he, he always prided himself on being the one person in his family that didn't get divorced so i did not want to get divorced i still have a little shame about that but um I accept it now and I'm okay with where I am, but, um, yeah, if, if I could have done anything to, to, you know, change that dynamic earlier, I would have. Yeah. So, and would you have come out, would you have outed yourself sooner about being an alcoholic? Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. I, um, and I can see that differently now. I can see why I didn't, um, part of it was because it was, uh, it was okay not to. Uh, because you can you can stay there and nobody tells you to nobody makes you out yourself um but also you know to keep myself that open window of of not um telling people uh, so i could drink but also i was you know stuck in the shame of not wanting anybody to know you know when you're embarrassed of being an alcoholic you're embarrassed of drinking you're embarrassed of getting a dui and you're embarrassed of being sober and in recovery you don't want anybody to know any of it like, who are you and why, you know, you get stuck because you feel like you're always hiding and you can't ever talk and you're always making up a story. Like you always have to tell people, oh, I'm, I'm not drinking because I'm taking a break or I'm on the whole 30 or, um, or, you know, oh, sorry, I was drinking last night. I must've got had a few too many. Uh, you're always making up stories and it just takes you away from who you really are. And the minute I got honest about it, and it only took me 15 years, so uh, <laughs> I get it. I mean, it, it, it's hard. But the minute I did it, it changed my life. It changed how I felt because I no longer felt that shame. And now I talk about it so openly. And it not only has helped me feel less shame, but it has helped so many people. Um, it's, it's amazing. I get, I get emails all the time from people who have followed my story on Instagram or Facebook, or have seen a story that I've shared, and they have said, um, I'm, I'm not drinking anymore because of you. Uh, thanks for giving me the courage to, to talk to my family about it. Um, so it's helped other people. I, and I, I, that, I never got that. I never got that by keeping quiet about it and stuck in my shame. I was being tremendously selfish and, um, and, pre- and preventing other people from, my, from hearing my story and getting the help that they needed. So I would have changed that a long time ago. And I hope that that changes if there's one message I can give to other people today, it's, it's that tell people, tell people about it. It, it. We hear, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, I don't tell people because um, I don't want to relapse and then make AA look bad or, or you know, uh, 
disparage the program in any way or, or have to admit that. Um, gosh, that's okay though. If if we are looking at addiction as a as a medical disease, relapse is part of that disease. So if you relapse down the road, it's part of it. And guess what? People that have cancer, they relapse sometimes, and they talk about their relapse. <laughs> they talk about their recurrence, and um, they don't feel shame about it. It just happens. So obviously, I never want to relapse. I hope I never drink again. I don't want to go through any of that crap again in my life. But if it happens, I'll talk about it because that happens a lot. It happens to Demi Lovato. It happens to, I mean, so many celebrities. It happens to a lot of us. Of course. It happens to me. Of course. Yeah. Because you spend 30, over 30 years of your life feeling that it's so important to fit in, always worried about what other people think about me, and this desperate craving for approval and social acceptance. So everywhere Absolutely. I go, I just do what they do to fit in. Mm-hmm. If they're sober, I'm sober. If they're drinking, I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. I am yeah. desperate to fit in because I am yeah. uncomfortable in my own skin. Yes, exactly. And Brene Brown writes about this. She, she writes about the difference between belonging and fitting in. Mm-hmm. That we all have this deep need, this deep, this deep need that we're born with for attachment and to belong and to be part of a community and to feel connected. Um, and, and with that, we have to be authentic. Mm-hmm. But so many of us sell out to fit in because we believe if we can just be a little dishonest or, uh, you know, just, just not be honest about who we are and not say what we really think or feel, um, just to be part of the group, uh, then, then we'll have friends and we'll fit in. And that's a, that's a really good feeling. You know, I, I had a friend um, tell me a couple weeks ago that she said, you know, I voted for Trump, but I have not told one person in my life that that, that I did because I'm so like. If people knew I voted for Trump, they think I'm a bad person. <laughs> and I said to her, "Oh my God, you're you're like the farthest person from a bad person. Like you're definitely not a bad person. It's okay. You voted for a different person." It's like, nope, you cannot be a woman in this country and admit you voted for Trump. So I don't want to tell anybody. So everybody thinks she voted for Hillary, and I'm like, that's a little thing. But how many? I mean, it's not little. Sorry, all the people out there. I don't mean to offend anybody, but uh, I, I, um, you know, how many, how many areas of our life are we doing that in where we don't yeah. say I struggle with alcohol or mm-hmm. my husband and I don't have sex anymore, or we have contempt or, or I went to rehab or, um, I voted for somebody else or, uh, you know, I don't support that person or that uh, issue. We're all being a little dishonest because we want to fit in. And in doing that, we're missing out on each other's authentic voices and our true selves. So we, we, we limit ourselves. We're, we're not ourselves there. So we're not really fitting in. We're, we're fitting in based on a persona who they think we are. But what also happens is we deprive other people the joy of knowing the real us. And as a therapist, anytime somebody comes into my office and can, can let the real them be seen and, and be completely vulnerable and authentic, every time they're cooler, <laughs> every time they're, they're more likable um, because they're real. And I really know who they are. Uh, so that's another thing we're talking about in the podcast about this, um, you know, fitting in business because it's, uh, oh, it's really bad right now in America. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, there's endless topics. Yeah. <laughs> you're not really? going to run out. Okay. Hannah, yeah. we've mm-hmm. got to close down. We're already hour Absolutely. and 45 minutes. So okay. we could do this for another three hours. I could feel it. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to close up for the newcomer. Are you ready? I'm ready. Wonderful. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? 
shame, <laughs> shame. <laughs> uh, yeah, shame and uh, embarrassment and uh, feeling like a victim and not wanting yes. to, to give up um, alcohol or the, the chance to drink it in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. And then number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I was a treatment in Arizona that summer, and I just um, started to see life getting a little bit better, and I um, was pretty hopeless, but also uh, had surrendered, and uh, it was the first time I felt like a spiritual awakening. There is that. It's so true. It's so true. Sometimes it's of that, you get that spiritual awakening of the educational variety. Mm-hmm. And you go, in rehab or in a meeting or in the middle of a step. And you just, it's that one question or that somebody shares that one thing and you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. the penny drops. Yep. Right? It's the most amazing feeling ever. But the, the best thing about that feeling is that incredible feeling of hope that you get right after. Yeah. Yeah. Now I get them all the time and I, I post about them on my Facebook and Instagram. So I, I have to share one with you because it's right it. here. Um, okay. God so uh, when you're a therapist, they tell you to always have a plant in your office because people have to look at your plant and know that you can keep the plant alive. Mm. So um, I've always had a plant in my office, except I um, I kill plants. Like <laughs> I don't kill patients, but I, uh, I did not keep plants alive very well. But this plant I've had for five years. My sister gave me this planter five years ago. And so I've had the same plant in there for five years. And when I went away to treatment, my co-therapist watered it for me. And this plant's didn't grow and I didn't kill it. I didn't have to replace it. So just last week, this flower appeared right here. And um, it's the first flower that this plant's ever had. Oh, my God. After five years? Yeah. After five years, I That's, got a flower. Oof. So that to me is a higher power sign yep. of uh, doing okay. <laughs> You're doing just fine, my dear. Yeah. Things I'm are growing. blossoming exactly the way they should. Blooming. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so now those, those things happen all the time and I just watch for them and really cool. So grateful that I have those things. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery? Yeah. Um, I read everything, um, and I love reading all the the biographies, like um, Sarah Heppel's Blackout and uh, a love or Drinking a Love Story. Um, but by far and large, the, the Brene Brown books are the most helpful. Um, and I would suggest uh, Rising Strong, talking about what to do after things fall apart, um, and talking about. Uh, and the other one is um, Darren Greatly. And um, she just came out with one recently called uh, Dare to Lead, which talks about um, uh, vulnerability um, and, and courage and, uh, and, and authenticity and compassion from an a organizational standpoint, um, business and, and corporate and organizational. And, and I just read that one last week. It's really good. Um, she kind of talks about vulnerability in a different way, which I thought was really helpful. So um, read that stuff, get vulnerable, have compassion for yourself, and let go of your shame. Get your shit together before I did. Don't go through this. All things Brene Brown. All things Brene Brown. I love it. She's amazing. and you know she's she's sober. Brene Brown is sober. She uh, has been sober for a long time, and she's not totally. She doesn't talk about that a lot, although I've heard her talk about it before. Um, but in this new book, she talks about it uh, more and uh, talks about how you know alcohol is and uh, a lot of other numbing behaviors prevent you from being vulnerable and keep you stuck in shame. So. Love it. Thank you, Brene. 
Thank you, Brene. I love that woman. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, so, number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Trust the process. And number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Believe in yourself. Know that uh, even though you feel like a piece of shit when you come in and when you start this and there's very little hope and life's hard, um, know that it's worth it and your life can get better and you're worth it. And know that you're not a horrible person and you don't, you have a lot of good in you. And even though you're focused on the, the bad stuff and the legal problems and the bad issues and the character defects and all the crap, um, you know, find the good in you, find the laughter, find the joy, find the hope because you're worth it. Everybody's worth it. And with that, we're going to close. Powerful, powerful. I love it. Hannah, thank you for this amazing story. Like, holy cow, we went hour 51 minutes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, everybody. <laughs> There's so much in there. There's so much. And that's why at the end, I wanted to recap all that. Thank you. Because there is so much. We, we sometimes get caught up in the tragedy mm-hmm. because that's what reels you in. But when we, when we dive into what it took for you to become the woman that you are today, we got it all on tape. We mm. recorded yeah. all of it. There's no question of what it took. It took divorce. It took becoming not anonymous. It, beca- it took becoming vulnerable, trusting turning it over, diving into the process, doing the work, exercise, spirituality, all covered in a two-hour episode. That's what I'm talking about. Well, thank you. That's, I can't tell you how, um, how much Sarah means to me. I, I listened. I wrote Omar this email um, about how you know, this show's been with me through, through all of it when I first went to Hazelden and when I came back and relapsed and it's been my common thread and it's given me so much hope and strength. And, um, and it's just been, I listen to it on my way to boxing. I listen to it when I, uh, make a dinner, I listen to it all the time. So it's been, um, hugely helpful. I'm very grateful, um, especially, uh, with all the stuff I've been through. So, um, uh, thank you so much for, for doing this and being there and changing lives and, and, and just allowing people to talk about different hard things, like about not being anonymous or, you know, different pathways to recovery and um, different stories and relapse and just how we, how we feel about all of it. It's, it's providing that place for a conversation that uh, is hard to have and that not a lot of people are willing to have. So I really am grateful for, for you. And I'm also grateful that you have shared your own story and your own growth and some of the challenges that you've had along the way with career stuff and relationships and parenting. And um, it's hugely helpful to me and to other people in the, in the recovery community. So um, thank you for everything you do, Omar. Real, raw, vulnerable. That's how we do it. That's <laughs> how we do it. Us getting butt naked honest helps everyone that's listening, helps everyone that's yeah. listening. It helps, it helps you come out of that veil of shame that you wear for so many years. And you say, my God, I listen to stories every single week. If they can do it, I can do it. Yep. Absolutely. And that's where we're at. It is my honor and my privilege. I'm so grateful that you joined us today, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, Omar. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. 
And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thanks, Omar. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.